welcome to today's episode of the Geopolitical Pickle. This episode's a little bit different. I'm going to be taking us back to an interview that I first recorded in January of 2022 with a prominent author for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, who's also an associate research scholar at the University of Princeton. He's a specialist in global security. His name is Sebastian Philippe. And the reason I've got him on is to talk about the defence partnership AUKUS, which is the Australian-UK-US trilateral agreement, and the potential repercussions for the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which we'd call in the interview the NPT. Now, I'll start off with talking about exactly what AUKUS is. It was designed as a defence partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom and the US, prominently aimed at providing security in Southeast Asia and the Pacific more generally. But it can be seen as part of a larger agreement to try and combat some Chinese aggression or assertiveness within the South China Sea, more generally through the Indo-Pacific region. As part of this agreement and why it was particularly important for this discussion, and actually why it's kind of really important again now, is because of the implications for the nuclear non-proliferation regime. This NPT was originally devised at the UN and was signed by almost every state in the world. The only exceptions being Pakistan and India, both of which are nuclear powers, North Korea, which withdrew, which is also known to have nuclear weapons, Israel, which again is known to harbour US nuclear warheads, although they don't openly admit this, and finally South Sudan, who basically have not signed the NPT because they're the youngest country in the world and it wasn't high on their priority list. Talk specifically about the submarines. What we see is the deal actually involved Australia getting Collins-class submarines from the United States, which are nuclear-powered submarines. Australia originally had a deal with France for traditional diesel-powered submarines, which they reneged on to change this to the US nuclear-powered submarines. That's not the focus of this episode, but it did cause some diplomatic turmoil between Australia and France. What's special about these nuclear-powered submarines is they run on highly enriched uranium in an internal reactor. And this allows the submarines to operate for long periods of time without needing to surface. Uh, they're only governed by the amount of supplies that they can keep on board, whereas a diesel submarine would need to come into dock to refuel, for instance. And secondarily, they've got another major benefit in operational situations is that, well, not only are they able to stay underwater for very long periods of time, but they're also much quieter than traditional diesel-powered submarines because the engine runs with no noise whatsoever as a nuclear reaction. So this gives a huge strategic advantage to countries that have this operational capability. What the problem is, is that the only countries that currently have submarine capabilities to operate these nuclear submarines are the United States, Russia, the UK, France, and China, which means that they are all nuclear powers already and are already covered under the nuclear non-proliferation regime and established as the nuclear powers, whereas any other country is not allowed to have nuclear weapons and not allowed to have nuclear technology under the nuclear non-proliferation regime, except for civilian use, which is basically for power plants. So Australia would be the first country outside of this framework to get nuclear-powered submarines. 
due to the technology being passed on by the United States. It's also interesting because it's brought up some issues domestically for Australia, such as how these submarines can be maintained. Do we need the United States to actually perform maintenance on them? In which case, it undermines the sovereignty and the independence of the Australian Navy because they're relying on an external power to come in and do the maintenance, which in a wartime situation means that we are always reliant on external powers. So it's not all cut and dry completely regardless. However, the interesting thing is this can provide a precedent. Originally, Brazil wanted to develop a similar nuclear-powered submarine domestically by themselves. And this was met with a lot of kickback from the international community saying that their safeguards that underpin the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty could be undermined. And there was a lot of talk about it. As a follow-up to that, they didn't actually end up going through with the construction. Another country which has actually talked about building nuclear-powered submarines in the past is Iran. We know Iran had the nuclear deal with the United States and Europe, which is which the US has pulled out of, and that was designed to stop Iran enriching uranium. Because by enriching uranium, you're able to eventually produce an atomic weapon. Countries are not allowed to enrich uranium to what is called weapons-grade uranium. Specifically, that's above 93% enriched with uranium-235, which is the radioactive element in an atomic weapon. That's a bit of a background on the nuclear submarines themselves. Now to move on to the NPT. I know I touched on it briefly there before, but to go into some more detail about exactly what it is. First of all, it's this UN treaty, which I mentioned previously, that basically enshrines the uses, the peaceful uses of nuclear power. And it's built on three pillars, which are all considered equal. So the first is about non-proliferation, which means that countries that didn't have nuclear weapons at the time it was brought about, which was only the five nuclear states, which, I, which I've said before, they're the only countries that are allowed to continue to have nuclear weapons. No other state is allowed under the treaty to develop nuclear weapons. Secondly, the treaty compels them or requires those states that have nuclear weapons to disarm. So disarmament being the seven pillar is obviously not going so well. When we look at where we are today in the world, we see Russia threatening the use of nuclear weapons for the first time since the Cold War. And the idea was that the countries were supposed to slowly reduce their stockpiles. And in practice, this hasn't really happened. Maybe in total numbers, they've reduced their stockpiles. However, in the power and the total volume of usable weapons, it hasn't really changed much at all. So we still have those five nuclear states, as well as the four non-signatories to the NPT and then finally, the third pillar of the NPT is the requirement for there to be an ability for countries to use nuclear technology peacefully and for those nuclear states to share that technology with other countries. What this means in essence is countries are allowed, encouraged to have uh, nuclear reactors for power generation. So Iran has that, for instance, and within these power stations, what you use is uranium-235 at 20%. As I said before, weapons-grade uranium is 93%, whereas what's required for the power station is only 20%. It's much lower enrichment level. So you can't make a weapon with the uranium that's used in a power station without further enrichment processes. And the way that this 
is insured is by the agency, the IAEA. They have agreements with all countries that are signatory to the NPT to come in to do inspections, which include checking for evidence of radioactivity, include access to laboratories, to reactors, and to have all the uranium material accounted for. Where this becomes tricky with the submarines is that there's has been called a loophole. And this loophole comes from a 1972 addendum to the NPT, which governs the IAEA's relationship with non-nuclear states and how they can use inspections or not have inspections when enriched uranium or uranium at all is used for non-peaceful, non-weapons use, which would be the case for a submarine that is powered by this. So the, the submarine itself is not equipped with nuclear weapons. However, it is powered by nuclear material and it's a not peaceful piece of equipment because it's designed for defensive and military applications. Now, it's important to note that this addendum has been agreed by all the countries that are signatory to the NPT. However, it's never actually been used and put into practice. And it's long been theorized that it could be used as a backdoor way of enriching uranium that is then outside the scope of inspectors and thus could be used to develop a nuclear weapon away from the prying eyes of the IAEA inspectors. This is not the point that Australia is going to produce a nuclear weapon. But the point is, if Australia does use this method of having their enriched uranium stockpiles outside these IAEA safeguards and inspection protocols, which is what they would do to guard the military secrets in terms of having this nuclear submarine, then it could create a precedent by which other countries then say, we are going to use the same precedent to have our own nuclear submarine program. And we're not developing a weapon. However, they very easily could. So we already talked about now Iran potentially trying to say that they were going to build a nuclear submarine before, and that was shut down, and that was part of the Iranian nuclear deal. The real interesting questions arise when we talk about how this could be used as a precedent. And it would be a very good way for a country to get around the safeguards that are in place. When we talk about the submarines and go into the technical side of it, each core that powers these submarines has over 500 kilograms of highly enriched uranium in it. And say Australia's fleet of 12 submarines, we're looking at already six tons of highly enriched uranium, weapons-grade uranium, when you only need 25 kilograms to make a bomb. This all comes at a time when, obviously, the war rages on in Ukraine, that Russia's war of aggression. And at the same time, they've threatened the use of nuclear weapons and have recently, just in the last week, pulled out of the New START Treaty. And the New START Treaty was an agreement on the limits of nuclear warheads for offensive purposes that both the United States and Russia had co-signed. So they were both limiting their nuclear weapons. So right now, obviously, nuclear weapons are a hot topic. Also, at the same time, we have accusations that Iran are starting up their enrichment program. They have already admitted to enriching uranium upwards of 60%. And there's accusations that they've actually raised it all the way to 84%, which is getting very close to being able to be used in a weapon. And we're waiting for IAEA inspectors to go in and be able to verify that. So in saying all that, the nuclear issue is a hotbed topic right at the moment. So I think it's really interesting to think about 
AUKUS in these terms and about the implications for the future of the MPT. Already we see countries pushing the limits and making it very difficult to maintain. Potentially, this could be another blow to the NPT. Now, it is my pleasure to have on for this interview, Sebastian Philippe. So we'll move over to his part of the conversation now. And please, if you've got any questions, if you want anything clarified, then get in touch listen to the episode, tell us what you think. Is AUKUS a good thing or should Australia reconsider? So my first question to you is about your article that you wrote for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And in the article, you argue that Australia being provided with nuclear submarines by the USA creates a dangerous precedent for the future. Uh, given this, what countries would you anticipate or could you anticipate would use this precedent and uh, in what possible ways? Well, first, thank you for, for having me, uh, Roland, today. And um, so let me give you a little bit of background here before I answer your first question. Uh, I started working on this issue, um, it was seven years ago, um, when it became apparent that Brazil, uh, which is also... Uh, just like Australia and non-nuclear weapon states, um, was uh, moving forward with uh, building, um, launching a nuclear submarine program, but also building um, a first prototype naval reactor. Um, and this was the first time, really, that the non-nuclear weapon state was going to use nuclear materials for a military application. So as, as, uh, as you probably know, um, it is the role of the International Atomic Energy Agency to verify in all non-nuclear weapon states that are party to the treaty that all materials in those countries is used for peaceful purposes uh, and that it's all accounted for also. Now, the issue we have here, obviously, is that the IEA under um, the safeguards agreement that it has with non-nuclear weapon states is not allowed to uh, access military classified information. And the safeguard agreements also provide an opportunity for non-nuclear weapon states to remove materials from safeguards for use in non-proscribed military activities. So here, the propulsion, the nuclear propulsion of, of nuclear submarines, uh, attack submarines, for example. Yeah. Um, so this, this issue has been, you know, has been around for decades, uh, really, that, that, that fear that there was this loophole that could be used. And so the first country that, that really started asking questions around those lines was Canada in the 80s. Uh, then Canada eventually decided not to go forward under massive pressure from the United States. Then came Brazil. No, Brazil was making very slow progress in the in you know, the past few years, and so the, the the U.S. and U.K. decision to provide assistance to Australia of a nuclear submarine came kind of really as a surprise here. And my argument of why this was such an issue was because this is a massive reversal in U.S. policy. So the U.S. always has tried to limit the spread of this technology, to put extreme pressure internationally to prevent other countries from acquiring this technology. And one of the rationale was to prevent or open new path for nuclear proliferation. So essentially here, using this possibility to remove nuclear materials from international control for military use as a diversion pathway 
towards developing nuclear weapons. Yeah, which I think you have mentioned before is like it's a significant amount of uh, material compared to what is required for a for a nuclear weapon as well. I think it's about fifty to one hundred times the amount of material or something that's removed from a safeguard. Yes, absolutely. So we. In the case of the AUKUS agreement, um, you know, the, the technology that is used by the US and UK is uh, naval reactors that are fueled with weapon-grade uranium, so uranium enriched to over 80, 93% um, in the uranium-235 isotope. And that's, that's really weapon-grade. I mean, you can use this uh, and weaponize this directly. We're talking roughly about half a ton, 500 kilograms per submarine core. And, you know, you need probably... You know, one quantity that is internationally accepted is 25 kilograms of HU. It's probably enough to do bomb. So it's it's really large amount of of HU we're talking about. And so other countries that have you know since since the AUKUS announcement, we we knew others had been interested in the past. Iran had expressed interest. South Korea has expressed interest. Some in Japan have expressed interest. The Indian Navy has been developing nuclear submarines. Uh, with the help of Russia, but as you know, re-expressed interest also to obtain the same technology. So there's two competing, I would say, military trains that are concerning. One is the spread of that technology because it's such an asset to you know all the countries in the Indo-Pacific essentially, and the second is whether that can also be used for for proliferation purposes and and you know either developing the bomb or justifying. Uh, the development of new nuclear program so that state become threshold states you know they don't necessarily yep. develop the bomb but they uh, they also develop their indigenous capability to enrich uranium for example and so on so that's that's a big issue also and well another follow-up question to that would then be do you think that the reaction internationally because i haven't seen a whole lot of uh, international media attention given to it would have been very different if it was say iran actively pursuing building nuclear submarines. I mean, obviously, as you said, they've been interested in the past, but they probably the reaction from the international community might have been quite different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be it would be, you know, a major, major pushback. But, you know, there was pushback uh, uh, on the AUKUS deal. There was concern in the U.S. from the non-proliferation community also um, that this was uh, not a great idea, especially because the deal involved such large quantities of possibly weapon-grade uranium, and that the U.S. since 9/11 has spent you know billion dollar or something trying to get rid of uh, highly enriched uranium everywhere in the world, you know, <laughs> yeah. converting uh, reactors that were running on HAU to LEU and so on. And so, by by just making this deal, you're you're <laughs> reversing uh you know two decades of effort of hu minimization so, uh all kinds of issues now you know not everyone is happy obviously okay and uh, you've already touched a lot on my, what my second question was going to be which was about uh, the us in particular so so basically it was such a big policy shift from their decision in the 1980s with canada and preventing them getting nuclear submarines and using proliferation reasons is the the main argument for that. Could this potentially provide a pathway for the US to provide nuclear submarine technology with other countries, such as, as you mentioned, South Korea or Japan, allies of the United States in the future? Or do you think Australia would be a one-off case? Or could it could it actually spell like a, a larger push for as well Russia or, or China to share this technology with their allies as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And 
No, that is, you know, I mean, essentially the U.S. has just set a new precedent that it was okay, not just to transfer the technology to existing nuclear weapon states, because, you know, the U.S. has done this with the U.K., Russia has done this with India, but for a nuclear weapon state to transfer the technology to a non-nuclear weapon state, it's the first. And yes, so you're opening up a new, you know, a new market. No, uh, I like to say every every admiral in, you know, every uh, medium to large size navy around the world is going to want a nuclear submarine. Uh, and so yes, you you're gonna you're gonna see uh, demand, and that demand will be could be filled with, you know, the U.S. over administration. This one, the Biden administration has said that they won't do it again. This was a one-off deal. Uh, but already, you know, South Korea has, has uh, expressed extreme frustration. No, it was also reported recently that South Korea is uh, getting help from Russia to build a prototype uh, naval reactor run with LAU. It says that this is for civilian nuclear propulsion, but it can also obviously be used for, for nuclear submarine propulsion. So uh, you can see that, yes, by 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 opening the door and, and creating a new precedent, then uh, there are new opportunities. The French also, you know, really went kind of all their way to, to so in this original submarine deal that the French had with Australia, the French took their new nuclear attack submarines and converted it to a conventional version for Which the Australian market. Diesel powered rather than. Right. And they could have, you know, if they could have sold a uh, nuclear submarine right away to Australia. Um, the problem, well, I mean, the reason why they did not do that in the past was because the US was always adamant to prevent such transfers. So no yeah. the door has been opened. So you can see. Um, different countries will will may have interest to make such deals. I mean, those would be major strategic military exports, and so yes, why not? All right. So the next question that I had was given all this. I mean, we we are aware of I think it's Article 14 in right. the Safeguards Agreement, and should the IAEA look to potentially close this loophole in the future to allow safeguarding and uh, and the verification of the full nuclear fuel cycle? of this highly enriched uranium, even above and beyond the protections allowed for, as you said, of protecting the highly sensitive uh, reactor technology? Uh, and could it be done uh, while still protecting this technology? So I, 2014, I published an article that was, you know, targeted at Brazil, and I kind of highlighted possible ways for the IEA to safeguard the naval fuel cycle in the context of Brazil. The bottom line is, like, it's very dependent on the type of reactor and the technology, whether there's access for refueling the reactor, whether the reactor needs refueling or not, and so on, uh, who provides the fuel, uh, you know. But you could, you could, you could imagine ways for the IEA to implement some degrees of safeguards. No, the problem, of course, is do states want the IEA to do that? And there are limitations, obviously, if the IEA is not to learn any classified information, then there are things you can't do, really. I mean, there are measurements you cannot conduct that the IEA would do normally. And the other issue is that submarines, you know, are fueled for periods of 10 to 20, 30 years, and uh, you may not have access to the reactor for so long. So, yeah, so you're talking about a 30-year window, basically, where this fuel could be outside of verification, because I guess you... One of your proposals, I think, was to check the fuel as it was coming out of, of use and, and being decommissioned, basically. Uh, right. And as it was going into, into the, right. into use. But it's still got a very large window, right. I guess, where. Yeah. And I mean, there are ways to possibly, you know, tag, I mean, kind of 
have special seals, even passive seals that you put towards the reactor uh, that would record uh, neutrons emitted from the reactor just to make sure that they've been operating and they've been operating for you know so many hours and so on or so many days. Uh, so there are ways you know you can go around, but it's it's very unclear whether inspectors would would have the right to do so. You would know, be allowed really to do so, right? Right. With who you gonna negotiate? I mean, all of this is new and unprecedented. Which actually, I think that leads quite nicely onto my next question. So, basically, other authors have suggested that Australia could use this as a potential opportunity to lead by example on how a non-nuclear weapon state could safely be using highly enriched uranium and still adhering to the guidelines of the NPT and their obligations and working with it under the IAEA standards. So you, as you said, you've also written previously about the potential safeguards the IAEA could implement to try and make the process safer. So my question then is, I think, do you think that some sort of negotiation could happen with Australia and the IAEA, bring an agreement about how the first non-nuclear weapons state can create a universally acceptable standard. What would this look like? And yeah, could Australia be used as a potentially positive test case? You know, uh, I I don't think so because I think I mean, first of all, my and that's my opinion. I think it's a terrible idea from the get-go for different reasons. Um, second, no, it can't be a precedent because it's the arrangements are going to be very specific to. The arrangements that will and the technology and the fuel that will be provided by the US and the UK and so on. You know, you so you 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 don't can't really p- provide a universal example for everyone. And second, I mean, as long as you use HEU, I think that's a terrible idea from the get go. <laughs> yeah, I think that's you know really going back on decades of effort of trying to minimize the use and and getting you. You know, read of this material that is weapon visible, and I think that's for me one of the biggest mistakes that is being done. So, if you know Australia really, really wants to mitigate this, one, it should not run the reactor on HEU, uh, and so you know, make arrangements with the US and the UK or other countries uh, to provide LEU and to design or redesign the you know the reactor to be fuel with LEU. So that would alleviate you know most of the concerns here. And yeah. then, yes, have some degree of safeguards with the IEA. If this is where we go, we're, you know, we're going essentially. But yeah, I don't think you would want to set precedence on that it's totally fine to use HEU for military purpose and remove such materials that, you know, completely out of safeguards, uh, anywhere in the world. You know, thinking that you would be able to set such precedent is also you know, I mean, it's it's just not, it's never going to work. I mean, if you run, <laughs> if you run, yeah, say say so. You know, oh yes, we're going to follow. We're, we are going to follow Australia example. Uh, we will run with HEU, and it will be safeguarded. So we're going to start to produce massive amount of HEU, and that's totally, you know, being to be uh, going to be okay. No, no one is going to accept that. So it is a uh, it is a big issue here. Yeah, I find it very interesting. I think if Iran was the first country to do this, then, <laughs> as you say, nobody would be acceptable. Nobody would find that acceptable, I think. So it really... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're trying to prevent Iran from having enough materials to build one bomb. And here we're talking about, you know... 20 or 50. 
or 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, the amount of materials that you would need for a proper nuclear weapon program, right? Because, I mean, building one nuclear weapon is not going to make you, an, you know, essentially not going to make you a nuclear weapon states with uh, mature and credible deterrent. Uh, but 20, 50, 100 weapons, you know, it might start, you know, it might start being, yeah. becoming more serious. Uh, and so you definitely don't want to encourage state to produce materials, uh, weapon-grade materials, in such quantities for any purpose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Right. So, I, I agree. <laughs> all right. Uh, in saying all this, I think you also wrote in the 2014 article about the risk of the theft of highly enriched naval fuel. And actually, that's the most high risk of theft of any of the situations because it's outside the safeguards and various other reasons. France and China have moved to low-level uh, uranium and rich material for, for powering the nuclear subs. Uh, with this deal, it, seem, it would seem as though the US is committed to using highly enriched uranium for the foreseeable future, unless there's drastic uh, design changes, as you've said, from the original nuclear-powered submarines that they have. So what advice then would you give to policymakers in the US with regard to this and how it affects their commitments and obligations for denuclearization under the NPT. And I mean, especially given that it's now a democratic government, and I think we would probably expect them, or traditionally they've been much more committed to to denuclearization and, and the NPT. Uh, so what advice would I give to, to US policymakers? Well, first, uh, first of all, uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, between the U.S. and, and Australia, there, there, there are over agreements, bilateral agreements that are in force. And right now, they do prevent the transfer of nuclear materials for military purposes or naval propulsion. So for the deal to move forward, for this to actually materialize, really, you're going to have to amend uh, existing agreements between the U.S. and Australia. This will require Congress approval. Um, so my recommendation right now is for Congress to be wary of a one-off exemption that whatever it does will set new standards for other countries and that in agreeing to the deal, it, Congress should ask for um, you know, specific uh, non-proliferation commitments from the administration. And one of them could be to push, uh, the administration to develop a dedicated LEU react for this deal. Because the, the you know, development of, of LEU fuel reactors in the US have been proposed, you know, for also a few decades. And recently, before under the Obama administration, there was some interest or beginning of interest at least to try new fuel or, you know, try modeling, try testing new uh, types of fuel that could support life of ship reactors with LEU and so on. So um, there is some money for R&D. And so I think uh, this should be done. This is, you know, I mean, if this is really where things are going, then you have an opportunity to do so. Um, so Congress should ask this, should also ask for a review, complete review of the non-proliferation implications of the deal, uh, because this has not been done. And, you know, you could see that the way the deal was made inside the 
the White House it was mostly involving people who deal with the Indo-Pacific region, but not the folks that are nuclear and non-proliferation experts. Uh, and so this needs to be done also uh, seriously. And uh, yeah, and, and and as part of those non-proliferation commitments, um, it will be to think and design uh, safeguards to protect the fuel from diversion, of course, but also from the nuclear security point of view, as you say, there's the threat of theft and so on. So there's a, there is a lot to be done. But to me, essentially, the the interesting thing is that politically, this is still a paper summary. I mean, it has no, nothing has been, you know, kind of set in stone in terms of design and deals and how much this is going to cost and so on. And, and we know that there are internal studies that are going on right now. And Australia, um, I think, is current, current, currently coming up to a federal election as well, which if right. could have an impact on this. Could have an well. impact as well. So right. at the moment, it's hypothetical, but I think it's right. But, you know, my bottom line is uh, I think, uh, yeah. The U.S. Congress and the U.S. administration should should think uh, much more carefully about the non-proliferation implications here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then finally, I think my my last question. So, is about Article 14, and because it could potentially, I, I guess, be used for other military applications in the future for non-nuclear weapon states to to say non non-weapon, non-peaceful use. I believe is so right. is the phrase. How could the IAEA close this loophole? Is there a push to close this loophole? I know we just missed the latest NPT review, which was supposed to be happening at the moment, I believe. But I don't know if this would have been on the agenda, but I think it's been brought to the fore, I guess, by this agreement. Uh, right. So the NPT REFCON was pushed back because of COVID again. Uh, and we don't know when it will take place. We know that China had actually put out a paper uh, criticizing the loophole and, 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 and the fact that this was setting a bad precedent and so on. So, you know, an obvious political reaction from China to take this on. Um, no, the problem with the NPT is uh, you have so many countries that are involved that trying to amend anything or agree on anything is at this point near impossible. So to close the loophole, you would need to revise the comprehensive safeguard agreement. Uh, and that's going to be a extremely long shot. You know, you would even have countries like Brazil, for example, who's building its own network reactor program will definitely be against this. And if you don't have consensus, mm. you, you know, and, and, Agreement across the board, you cannot make any change, so it's uh, difficult. <laughs> well, a, you know, it's not it's, going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, on that optimistic note, uh, is there anything, <laughs> any other remarks that you have for uh, to close it out? Uh, no, we look, I mean, this is uh, we are. I mean, um, you know, we are entering. I think uh, a new period, you know, some call it the new Cold War and so on, you know, the, the rising tensions between the US and China and uh, rising tension in the Indo-Pacific. And as, you know, China has made high moves to increase the size of its nuclear arsenals, the US has tried to respond. Uh, and one part of the response was the AUKUS deal. Um, but so has this, you know, 
possible new arms race that is now unfolding move forward. We're going to see more, more situations, more, like more situation like this. You know, not necessarily nuclear submarines and so on, but you know, there will be, there will be uh, questions about the nuclear order that we have at the moment. Right, 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 right. You know, technology transfer, whether it's from the U.S. or other countries and so on. So we're going to see more and more of this, and uh, yeah, we. We need all hands on deck to try to, <laughs> you know, prevent prevent things from running out of control. All right. Uh, I think that's pretty much everything I had for you today. So I'd just like to say thank you again very much for, for making the time and coming on. It's been re a really good chat. And yeah, yeah I'll so definitely let you know once over. Thank, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I hope you get an A. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. No, I'll definitely... Uh, Send you send you the link once it's uh, finalized, and <laughs> you can have a look. But thanks again, Sebastian, and I'll I'll chat to you later. Yeah, you have a good evening. Bye. Thank you. You too. Ciao. The geopolitical pickle is created by Ronan Wordsworth and Juan Francisco Muñoz, two geopolitical studies postgrads from Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Follow us on Instagram at the geopolitical pickle or Twitter at the Geopico for more content and follow us on every podcast platform.